Thanks for checking out the Vox Church podcast. We are so honored to have you join us, and we hope this message speaks to you in a powerful way. Learn more about Vox Church by visiting us online at voxchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Good morning, church. You all look good. Good morning, balcony. If you're new to Vox, we're one church in multiple locations. I just, you know, driving into New Haven today, I just was overwhelmed with that sense of like, Lord Jesus, thank you that by your grace today, one church is gathering in Hartford and in Middletown and in Springfield, Massachusetts, in North Haven, in New Haven, Connecticut, and today for the first time in Stamford, Connecticut, and Bridgeport, Stamford, Connecticut, today, seven locations. So God bless you, Bridgeport. God bless you, Stamford, all of our locations. Wow, what a joy to be the family of God, huh? It's a miracle. I mean, it is a miracle, and it is happening among us right now. And so uh, it's exciting. It's exciting. If you have a Bible, you can go to John chapter 14. That's where we'll be. If you're new to the church, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you for being here with us today. We've been in a teaching series looking at the names Jesus gives himself in the gospel of John. So important. I've mentioned this many times. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. That how you see him frames your entire point of view on life. And so Jesus gives us these seven names where he says, I am that I am. And then he reveals something about himself. And so we've looked at all different names that he's given us. I am the bread of life. I am the shepherd. I am the door. And today we're going to look at the sixth name. Maybe one of the more popular and more famous names in, uh, embodied in a verse that many of us have heard before. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 14. It says, let not your hearts be troubled. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, and here's our verse today, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, except through me. If you want to jot some notes down today, the title of my sermon is Take Me Home. Take me home. Take me home. Would you pray with me at all of our locations? Let's open up our heart to God. God, we are privileged to be able to gather together, study the Bible, and experience Jesus. And so I pray that that would happen today. I pray that you meet us exactly where we are. I know that right now at all across our locations, we are coming to you in different places, different backgrounds, different struggles, different victories. So I pray in the name of Jesus that you would supernaturally meet us right where we are now. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Last year, the BBC polled literary experts across the nations. 35 different countries participated in this poll. They found those that were particularly uh, you know, uh, skilled or knowledgeable about literature, fiction literature, and they asked them to rank the greatest stories of all time. The greatest fictional stories of all time. And so, of course, it was a pretty exhaustive list. Romeo and Juliet was on the list. The Harry Potter books we're on the list. I know somebody's excited about that. But, uh, but the number one fictional story of all time, according to experts from nations all around the globe, the number one story of all time was the epic tale, The Odyssey. The Odyssey. And some of you are like, The Odyssey? 
That book I had to read in seventh grade. Yeah, yeah, The Odyssey or 12th grade or 11th grade, whatever it was for you. But uh, The Odyssey is, you know, written by Homer, 8th century BC, 3,000 year old story. And it's a story about a man who's leaving war. He's been at war for 10 years and he is now going to travel home. His name is Odysseus and he's going to get to Ithaca, which is his home. And if you know the story, he doesn't exactly get there right away. What was supposed to take 10 years, 10 days, excuse me, takes 10 years. And he is left into a a host of challenges and adventures and trials, fighting monsters, battling all these various creatures. And finally, at the end of the story, I'm just going to ruin it for you. At the end of the story, Odysseus gets home. It's been 20 years since he's seen his son or his wife. And he discovers that his wife, Penelope, has been waiting all along. Turn to person next to you. That's a good woman. That is a good woman. Been waiting all along. And so he finally arrives home. What is it about this story that seems to transcend culture and time? 3,000 years, people are still talking about it. Something inside this tale resonates so deeply. Something about a man trying to get home speaks to a part of us that many times we are not even aware exists. There is something mythic about this story. There is something that is beyond the walls of this world. An ache toward home. Where did you grow up? I grew up at 14 Barton Circle. This is where I lived. My mom, my dad, my older brother. I haven't been in that house for 25 years. 25 years. But right now, I could explain every little crevice and corner of that place. I can still see in my mind where I carved my initials in the basement steps, right next to the place where my dad carved his initials in the basement steps. I can remember the backyard. I can remember every tree. There was a little brook that ran behind our house. I can remember every little rock in that stream. I can remember my, my room and where I used to keep this little knife that I had hidden because every boy needs to hide a knife somewhere. You know what I'm saying? And so I had this knife hidden in this one particular place in my room. I can remember the shag carpets. Come on, somebody say amen. The shag carpets from the 80s. I can remember all types of various little specific things about that house. Well, my parents were divorced. My mom remarried. We moved out of that house. And I haven't been there, like I said, for a long, long time. But, you know, it's still strange that when I drive by that area of town, I find myself wanting to stop. I don't know if you do this, maybe with a home you grew up in. I find myself wanting to stop, want to turn down that street, want to take just one lap around that street and kind of just drive by. And even looking at that house now, I'm still sort of like, why is somebody else living in my house, you know? And there's a part of me that still feels like I belong there. There's a part of me that still feels like it's home, like I want to go back, like I want to walk through that place and, and relive some of those moments. But, you know, there's also a part of me that knows that if I ever did get back in there, if I ever did walk around that house, it wouldn't be what my mind has made it, that it wouldn't be what I thought it was, that almost everything I'm sure at this point has already changed and I would not find what I'm looking for because what I'm looking for goes deeper than sheetrock or walls or carpet or kitchens What I'm looking for is not an old house. What I'm looking for is a sense of home. And so are you. So are you. Every single one of us has this inclination in our hearts. And I wonder if you recognize it today, this longing. You know, when life is busy, when we're kind of running and buzzing, it's easy to bury this. But when things quiet down, you'll notice in your own heart a restlessness, an awareness that you're not quite where you want to be, 
but you can feel, you can sense where you want to go, and you know that it's somewhere, but you're not exactly sure where. Well, the beginning of God's story gives us a picture for this feeling. In Genesis chapter 3, this is what we're told about Adam. It says, so the Lord God banished him, that's Adam, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So the story of God begins with humanity at home with humanity living in the presence of their creator, walking with God in the cool of the day is the way it's described. And so God and man, God and woman in lockstep together. Adam and Eve choose to sin, separate themselves from God, and that separation forces God to drive them out of that garden. And so they have to leave, and they do not return, excommunicated from the tree of life. And this sense of Eden still exists on the inside. This sense of Eden passed down from one generation to the next, still echoing inside your heart today. This sense that you're not quite where you're supposed to be, that there is a garden somewhere. There is a place where you would really feel at home. And you might make it 14 Barton Circle. You might make it Kansas Dorothy. You might make it Ithaca Odysseus. You might make it the Shire Frodo. But there's this sense that you're not quite where you need to be and you just want to go home. Go ahead and turn to the person next to you and say, there's no place like home. There's no place. There's no place. Somebody just clicked their feet together. The Lord heard your cry. John chapter 14, Jesus has his disciples in an upper room, and he is talking to them about his departure. He's saying, listen, I'm going to die for the sins of the world, and I'm going to leave this place. And he starts telling them that. And of course, the disciples are bothered by his words. And that's why he says in verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house are many rooms. See, he changes the conversation. He starts talking about another place. He says, if we're not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again. I'll take you to myself. And where I'm going, you also will be. And you know where I am going. So Jesus says, hey, listen, and he wants to say it to you today. Listen, that desire for a place called home that exists on the inside of you, that longing to feel like you're safe, to feel like you're settled, to feel like you've arrived, to feel like you are complete, that sense of home that echoes on the inside of you, it's really real. It's from me. In fact, it's a real place. And it is my purpose, Jesus says, to bring you there. And I've got good news for you. You know the way. Now, thank God for Thomas, right? Thomas often gets a bad rap in the Bible because he doubted Jesus after the resurrection and all that. But, but I've got to say, I can identify with Thomas in many moments in my life because he asks the obvious question that I think many of us would ask if we were sitting around the table with Jesus that night. Look what he says. He says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? I love the moments that are so candid that, you know, if the disciples were to edit some things out, they would make themselves look slightly less like idiots. You know, they're just like, we don't know what's happening. We have no idea what you're talking about. Can you please give us some context? Because we're not sure how to follow you. And then Jesus replies with one of the most famous sentences in the New Testament. Look at it with me again. He says, and he said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, he's saying to them, listen, 
What you're looking for is not just a place. It's more than a place. What you're looking for is a way back to God. That deep down inside, your heart longs for God. You want to be near him. You want to be close to him. You want to experience him. And you might think that it's 14 Barton Circle or Ithaca or the Shire, but what you really need is not that old bed or that old room or that old neighborhood. What you really need is that longing for God to fully and deeply satisfy your soul. I love the way Brendan Manning puts it. He says the deepest desire in our hearts is for union with God. God created us for union with himself. This is the original purpose of our lives. And so Jesus says to us in this context, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And it's critical if we're going to experience this place called home, if we're going to experience the reality of that, that we understand what he meant when he said, I am the way, I'm the truth, and the life. Because I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I am the guide. Although in many contexts, Jesus is our guide. He's saying something deeper than that here. When he says, I am the way, what he's not saying is, I'm here to show you the way. I'm here to give you steps to get you to the way. This is, by the way, the essence of man-made religion. Religion would tell you that you've got five steps to fulfill if you're going to reach God. You've got to do these ten things. You've got to cross this, you know, difficult challenge. You've got to fulfill these ten commandments. You've got to execute these five pillars. You've got to perform this many generous deeds. Do this, and then you will be accepted by God. That's the most natural form of spirituality that human beings know. Now, the problem with that is that if you do a good job being a good person in your own mind... You will inevitably become confident in your ability to reach God yourself. And that confidence will lead you to a sense of self-righteousness, which is problematic when reaching God because he says that he only receives the humble and rejects the proud. So your attainment of righteousness by your own merits will actually keep you from experiencing God because it's a deception in your heart to think that you could ever reach him through your righteousness. And so, if you do well, you're far from God. But most of us, I think, actually end up in the other category. We don't do well. We try to be a good person. We try to love others. We try to honor God. But we find ourselves falling back into same addictions, falling back into similar patterns, falling back into a broken process. And we find ourselves shaking our fists saying, why can't I do this? It's exhausting. It's frustrating. I can't seem to change. I can't seem to be different. I want to honor God, but I keep sliding back into a life that I don't want to live. And that shame will keep you from God. But this is the glorious paradox of the Christian faith so often missed by Christians themselves. And the paradox is that you don't get to God by doing good. You don't get to God by earning your points with him or by proving your righteousness through your deeds. Jesus says, no, 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 that in fact will never get you to God. And then he says, I am your way. I am your way. What he's trying to say there is he's like, he's saying like, listen, I am not a guide who will lead you to the on-ramp of 95 South so that you can go to Stanford today. That's not who I am. I am, rather than a guide who leads you to 95 South, you have to see me. I am 95 South, okay? In other words, I cut down the trees. I bulldozed the ground. I paved the cement. I made you a highway back to God, and you cannot contribute in the construction. All you must do is get on the highway and receive. Oh, I pray this sinks into your soul. Look at it with me in Hebrews chapter 10. The writer says it like this. He says, by his death, Jesus opened. Everybody say, opened. 
He opened, what did he do? He opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Since you have a great high priest who rules over God's house, this is my favorite part right here, verse 22, let us go right into the presence of God. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. If your conscience has been cleansed by his blood, why are you still carrying that shame? Why are you still holding on to that guilt? Why are you still bound by that fear? My message for you this morning is that you don't have to be when you know that he is your way. Come on, turn to that person next to you and say, you should be clapping a little bit more during this service. A little bit more. I am. I am the way. I've come. You've got to retrain your heart. See, if you're like me, my heart has this broken inclination to try to earn God's favor. It seems that I am just stuck seeing him that way. And it has taken years, and by God's grace, there's been much, much progress, but it has taken years to retrain my heart to see him as he is, to realize that Christ is my way, that I'm already forgiven that I'm already clean, that he's already forgiven me of future sins and past sins by faith in Christ, that he's made me blameless, that he has made me whole because he is my way. I want to say it like this this morning. Jesus provides perfect proximity, perfect proximity. What does that mean? Proximity means nearness, to come close And what I'm saying to you today is that Christ provides you with a perfect proximity towards God. So you can come into the very presence of God through the highway of Christ. And you come not based on your own merits, but his merits. When Christ came to live a perfect life, he did it as your representative. When he died a death on the cross, he did it as your substitute. And when he rose from the dead, he did it so that he could give you new life. So that by placing your faith in what he's done, not in what you do, but in what he's done, you will receive his perfect merits and he will on the cross receive your broken sin so that through a divine exchange you now stand in the merits of Jesus before the Father and when you pray to God he hears it as if his son himself has prayed. So I guess the question then becomes why are you still so hesitant as if you could earn your way to God? As if you're saying, oh, well, Justin, I think if I give a few more dollars, he'll probably hear me. He doesn't want your money. Well, I think if I come to church a little more consistently, he might hear me. Well, that might be true, actually. No, I'm just kidding. He doesn't, no, he doesn't receive you based upon church attendance. He receives you based upon faith in his son, which means you've got to retrain your heart You've got to let go of all of your broken ways of trying to earn his, his place or a place with him. And you've got to abandon yourself to trust in what Christ has done alone. I am the way. And then he says, I am the truth. I am the truth. And this one is a little difficult for us to swallow. You know, this, this claim to be the truth. It's an audacious claim. Especially in our day and age, we live in a pluralistic society. We champion the values of tolerance, right? And the air that we breathe in our culture is this idea that 
ultimate truth, absolute truth, doesn't really functionally exist. That there's no objective standard of right and wrong. That people get to choose what's right for them. That what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And I pick my truth and you pick your truth. Many people have inadvertently embraced, you know, what has been described as the elephant perspective, okay? The elephant perspective functionally says this. It says that, you know, that, that truth is like an elephant, okay? It's like an elephant and all of the different philosophies of life and religions, they are like blind men walking around the elephant. And so one blind man walks up, he grabs the elephant's tail and he says, oh, truth is like a, is like a snake. And then another blind man walks up and he grabs the elephant's leg and he says, no, truth is like a tree trunk. And then another, you know, blind man walks up, he grabs the elephant's side. He says, no, truth is more like a wall. And so the perspective would say, well, see, they're all right because truth is various things to various people. We all have our own truth. And so, and so they all have a piece of the truth. And so that means that it's true for them. Now, that perspective seems tolerant. It seems fair. It even seems humble. The problem with that perspective is that the person who holds to it is indirectly claiming that they can see the whole elephant. You see that? And so in other words, by saying different people have different pieces of truth, they are saying that they have the perspective that enables them to see that different people have different pieces of truth, and they are offended that others would claim to have the truth while they themselves say that they don't, but at the same time actually say that they do by saying that they can see the entire elephant. And so the point behind it is that that whole perspective is hypocritical. And Jesus comes and stamps on our pluralism and says, I am the truth. I am the absolute embodiment of what is real. And you can create your own concepts or follow your own paths, but you need to know at the end of the day that if you want to see clearly in this life, if you want to see reality in this life, Jesus is God's revelation of reality. I am the truth. The truth. I reveal ultimate truth. And for many of us, let's just be honest, this is a terrifying idea. It's a terrifying idea because it requires that you give up control. And I know you like being in control, don't you? So do I. You give up control. If you're going to embrace Jesus as the truth, it means he gets to define what's right and wrong. It means he gets to choose what's best. And that's scary. And for many of us, it's like, well, I agree with Jesus on love and on peace and all the things he says about joy. I will take those. But I'd like to edit out some of the other things he said. Like, am I ready to give Jesus total control when I think about sexuality? Am I allowing Jesus to define the way I think about my money? Am I allowing Jesus to shape the way I raise my kids? Am I allowing Jesus to shape the way I view my marriage? Why would you give God that kind of control in your life? You would give him that kind of control... Because he has proven his trustworthiness by what he's done. He came to live as your representative. He died as your substitute. He rose again so that you could have new life. And he has planted his very life inside of those who believe so that they can live for eternity. And in doing so, he has revealed, remember he's the revelation of reality. He has revealed God's heart to us. And so every little fear that is afraid that God is going to be distant, every little fear that's afraid that God is actually some tyrant or that 
he's going to be aloof or that he's going to be disconnected is proven wrong by what Jesus has already done. And Jesus cries from the cross and cries from the empty tomb that he is never going to leave you. He is never going to forsake you, that his heart towards you is love and you can trust it. I'm the truth. And the truth he reveals is so good. It's so good. I love how Richard Foster says it. He says that the heart of God is an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and our preoccupation. He weeps over our obsession with muchness and manyness. I love that. With muchness and manyness. He longs for our presence. He longs for our presence. You know, the Bible creates some limits. The truth that Jesus reveals has some limits. But every limit he has is, is a limit rooted in love. He creates some boundaries for us. But every boundary God creates is to increase the blessing in your life. It's to increase the blessing in life. And sometimes his ways are higher than ours and we can't understand his limits or his boundaries. And these are the moments where we need to trust his intentions. Do you? Do you live that way? Think about your last week. Think about your last month. Is there a tug of war in your heart? Is there any area of your life where you are unwilling to submit to his truth? Unwilling to trust that what he says is smarter than what you feel? Because this is where life gets difficult. And this is where we decide if we experience the third piece that he claims. I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. I'm the life. In other words, his intention towards you is life. If you've noticed in the six names that we've studied about Jesus, every single time he weaves this idea of life in. He says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the shepherd that lays down his life. I'm the door that leads to life. I'm the light of life. He keeps telling us about life, life, life. And here he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. One of the early church fathers said it like this, that the glory of God is man fully alive. You've got to hear this today. God is not trying to limit your fun. God is not trying to cut off yourself. God is not trying to destroy your personality. God is trying to bring you to life. He has a plan for you that is so much better than you can imagine, but you got to trust him with it. You've got to take that step of faith. You've got to say, okay, God, I don't see all the details. I don't understand all your perspective, but you're smarter than I am. And so I submit to a transcendent revelation and I'm going to follow you. And in following you, you'll discover that his intention for you all along was to bless you, to give you life. And this is where we get into the essence of what it means to be a Christian. See, Christianity at its core, church, is not a creed. It's not just a belief system. Christianity at its core is the life of God living in the heart of the believer, making that believer more like Christ, experiencing God's life. His spirit fused in an unbreakable bond to your spirit by faith in Christ so that you have eternal life now. So Jesus says, I'm the way. I bring you into perfect proximity. I'm the truth. I am the revelation of reality. And I am the life. Jesus connects you to eternity. He connects you to eternity now. You can know eternal life. And I think that this is where so many of us struggle. Because we hear sermons like this, and we're like, 
Amen. Hallelujah. You know, sounds good to me. But how much of this is actually real for you? I mean, really, you know, you got to go to work tomorrow or maybe on Tuesday or whatever you've got to do. Maybe you got to go back to class. Whatever it might be for you as you're doing your normal routines of life, do you know this? Do you feel connected to God like this? Do you experience a nearness to God that is life itself, that is breath for you, that is alive? Because if you don't, either he's lying or you're misunderstanding. Either his truth isn't true or you're disconnected because something along the line has gotten mixed up in the contact. So what could be missing? If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, how does that become real? How does that become real for you? How do you experience that kind of life? A couple months ago, I took my wife to go see a Broadway show in New York City because I love Broadway shows. Actually, I am starting to like them more, but my wife is really into, you know, shows, and so I go, and we have a great time, and, and, uh, and we went and saw The Lion King. Any fans of The Lion King out there? Lion King, yeah. Okay, good, good. So, you know, you've seen the movie, maybe, you know, you've seen the movie, but we went and saw it on Broadway, and it was, it was awesome. I mean, it was a lot of fun. The music was incredible. The acting was really good. The costumes were just out of this world, and we're enjoying ourselves, having fun, laughing, watching the show. And then it gets to this scene, you know, it's all dark in the theater, hundreds of people there. It gets to the scene where Simba's been wandering around, you know, he's been living a Kuda Matata for a while now. He's been singing and having fun and, and, and just doing life, you know, living his own life. But then this moment of reckoning comes, you know what I'm talking about, where Mufasa shows up, right? And he reveals himself in the clouds and he speaks to Simba. And he says to Simba, he says, Simba, you have forgotten me. And Simba replies to his dad, he says, no, 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 I haven't. He says, you have forgotten who you are. Oh, I pray the Lord would get your attention today. You have forgotten who you are, and so you have forgotten me. Look inside yourself. You are more than what you have become. Remember who you are. You are my son. And I'm sitting there, you know, I'm sitting there at the, uh, at the Broadway show like, <laughs> oh, allergies, you know, like, like just trying to, trying to hold it together because, because something about his words, it was like, whoa, 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 hold on a second, hold on a second. We're going much deeper than a Broadway show right now. Something he just said has nothing to do with lions or jungles or akuta matata. Something he just said has to go much deeper. He just spoke a language that my spirit knows. He just said something that speaks to Ithaca, that speaks to Kansas, that speaks to the Shire, that speaks to home. He just said something that echoes deeper than all the stories, something mythic that lives inside of me. What are you trying to tell me, God? What are you trying to get my attention with? See, just before Jesus is betrayed by Judas and goes to the cross, he takes time to pray with his disciples, and he in fact prays a prayer. It's known as the high priestly prayer. In John chapter 17, he prays this prayer, and it's the very last thing he does before he goes into the garden and is betrayed. And so we are recorded, the prayer is recorded for us, and the very last part of this last prayer that he prays is this. I want to read it to you. He says, oh righteous Father, this is Jesus praying, he said, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. 
and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, I believe this is one of the most important verses in all the Bible. It's the last prayer and the last thing Jesus says while he's in the upper room with his disciples. So he says, I've made known to your name. Why? That the love with which you've loved me, check this out, will be in them and I in them. I am allowing them to know you in this way, God. And so we're told that God has a name, that God has a name, that when that name is deeply known, the same love that God has for Jesus will flood my heart and it will become real to me. That nearness will become my experience. But it seems in the text that he doesn't specify the name in which he is referring to. And so we know that God has many names in the Bible, right? He is called the I am that I am. That's what we've been studying. God is the great I am, but he's also called El Shaddai, which means almighty. He's He's called Elohim, which means one of power. He's called the morning star, the prince of peace, the lion of Judah. He's got a million different names. Jesus says that the revelation of this one name brings the love of God into the experience of the heart. And in fact, so that we wouldn't miss it, yet somehow we do, he uses the name 53 times in this time in the upper room with his disciples. And he includes it in his statement in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the... It's true that God is judge. It's true that God is ruler. Oh, he wants to get your attention today. He's going to mess with you. It's true that God is creator. But above all... He isn't truly known, and you aren't truly home until he's father to you. I wonder what your relationship with your dad was like. Maybe he didn't exist in your life. Or maybe he loved his work more than he loved you. Or maybe he left Or maybe he was the nicest man you've ever met. Regardless of your natural experience, Jesus calls you into something deeper. This is the secret of how you get back to 14 Barton Circle. It's the secret how Odysseus reaches Ithaca. It's the secret how Dorothy gets back to Kansas. 10,000 other stories To know God as Father is to come home. It's the home you desperately need in the situation you're dealing with right now. See, life looks different. When God is Father, those fears, they look ridiculous. Those anxieties, they look tiny. Those concerns, they evaporate. Everything changes when this goes from the head to the heart. Jesus knows that. He knows that. If there's one thing he wants you to grasp, is that through what he's done, Now, God can treat you like his son, like his daughter. And so he calls back to you. 
And he says, have you forgotten me? And you might cry back, no, no. And he says, you've forgotten who you are and so forgotten me. You are more than what you have become. Remember who you are. You are my son, my daughter. I love how theologian J.R. Packer puts it. He says, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. That's how important this is. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of God, of being God's child and having God as his father. Most important part, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Does this thought control your whole outlook on life? Maybe you're here today and you say, Justin, I've been a follower of Jesus for 11 years. But the truth is, you're not an 11-year-old Christian. You're a one-year-old Christian who's just been living the revelation of that first year 11 times. And so you still, after all these years... Oh, thank God that he's patient with us, right? You still, after all these years, don't know he's your father. And so you're still battling. You're still struggling. You're still striving and fighting. And because you've got to know him that way. And you think, oh, well, I guess I have to pray more. I guess I have to read the Bible more. I guess I have to give more money. I guess I have to go to church more. I guess I have to, could you give me the steps? Huh. And that's, that's the whole point of the verse. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You don't have to earn any of it. Just get on the highway. Just receive by faith, and you can know him like that right now. Just stand to your feet with me at all of our locations. A sobering question for you this morning. Are you living like you've forgotten who you are? Are you living like you've forgotten who you are? Are you trying to pay God back and earn your way? Are you trying to barter with God around what is true and what is not? Are you living like you've forgotten who you are? You say, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him. And you can do that right now. I've been praying for you this week. I've been praying that in this moment right now, God would unlock for you the revelation of the Father and you would never be 
the same. Let's pray. God in heaven, we invite your Holy Spirit right now to do what only you can. I pray that you breathe on your people this morning. I pray that you move among us now. And as we bring you our brokenness and our insecurities, as we bring you our offenses, as we bring you the story of our fathers, the ways they've succeeded and failed, as we bring you our sense of insecurity and our fears, God, as we bring you all that we are, I ask that right now, you would bring us all that you are. And I pray that in this moment now, you would be known as Father in Jesus' name. Let's sing. Fox Church seeks to reach New England and beyond with the life-transforming message of Jesus. If you have been impacted by this message or the ministry of Vox Church, you can continue to help us reach others by giving today at voxchurch.org forward slash give. For more information on how to get involved, visit us online or on any social media platform at vox.church. We always appreciate you taking the time to rate or review this message on iTunes. Thanks again for listening to the Vox Church podcast.